Hostivity's been given a really bad rap over the years, and why that is and where it started, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe it started with the all the public speakers who pitch positivity as the cure-all for what ails you, or maybe it's the overwhelming amount of people on Instagram who are continuously pushing posts out that you got to be positive, you got to stick with it. If you shoot for the moon, at least you land among the stars. It's just overly corny, overly cheesy, and it's just easy, cheap content. All this positivity that maybe people are using as a crutch because they don't have a lot of skill and they're just preaching positivity because it's easy and it's cheap. Maybe this is where the knock on positivity has come from. In either case, all I know is that I had to dig deeper into this and find somebody who has a good argument as to why positivity is a bad thing. To understand where this came from, and I found a book. The book that I'm talking about is The Antidote by Oliver Berkman. You know, Berkman says that for a civilization so fixated on achieving happiness, we seem remarkably incompetent at that task. He goes on to say that self-help books, they don't seem to work. Few of the many advantages of modern life seem capable of lifting our collective mood. He argues that in our personal lives and society at large, it's precisely our constant effort to be happy that is making us miserable. And that positive thinking isn't the solution, but part of the problem. And that there is an alternative, a negative path. A negative path to happiness and success that involves embracing failure, pessimism, insecurity, uncertainty, and the things that we spend our lives trying to avoid. All right. Let's do this thing. Now, before I came across this book, I have never heard of Oliver Berkman. But anybody who gets a book deal and who goes out there and pitches negativity, pessimism, cynicism as your prescription to your lack of happiness, like it boggles my mind. So this is a great exercise for me because before I broke into the book, I had to short circuit my own monkey brain because what happens when we don't like what we hear? And someone's telling us something that's in complete like opposition to your own beliefs and values. You dismiss them. You say they're idiots. Get out of here. I don't want to hear from you. That is something that we have to learn to short circuit. And so I had to take a moment to calm myself down and say, okay, am I missing something? Can Mr. Berkman, can Oliver teach me something that I don't already know? Can he introduce me to a brand new perspective? How can I approach this audiobook with an open mind and not just shut it down and say he's a fool? Because that's the problem today, that we have so many people who have opinions and they're so opinionated about things that they don't really know a lot about. Wink, wink. And that wasn't to anybody. That's to society in general, by the way. And I'm included in that boat as well, right? Everyone's talking about coronavirus and COVID and what to do and what to do. Get out of here. We're all bums. We don't know what we're talking about. In any case, I digress. What happens when somebody comes in direct opposition to us, we just chastise them. We say, nah, I can't learn anything from you. And I think that's a problem. I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to improve. So what I did was I had to relax and say, okay, Oliver Berkman is going to teach me something. Even if it's just one thing, it's worth it. So in any case, I was excited to get into this book. I was excited to hear a new perspective. I got to let you in on kind of what I was feeling. I'll share that with you at the very end. But as we go through these golden nuggets together, maybe there's something that you can learn in there. Maybe he's not completely wrong. So anyways, I have to uh, read this book, get into it. So I'm going to get into it on Audible and uh, take my Roxy girl for a little walk and uh, I'll listen to it at uh, two times speed just to 
get through it really quickly. Anyways, let's crack right into this one after uh, I get ready and get moving. Let's get going. Roxy, you ready to go? Look at her. You ready to go, girl? Let's go for walkie? Yeah, let's go for walkie, girly. Let's go for walkie. Golden nugget number one. The self-help industry is filled with nothing but charlatans. And the self-help industry is not gonna make you happy. That's what Berkman says. And he goes on to reference two books, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and How to Win Friends and Influence People, Covey and Carnegie. He goes on to say that each book brings about a piece of information that we should know about as readers. Number one, that Seven Habits is about knowing what you want and just going out and getting it. And Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, is just about being pleasant, not being obnoxious, and using people's first names a lot. All right. He then goes on to mention that goal setting isn't as important as we think it is. Because goal setting has become a staple in the self-help industry. And in the self-help industry, people talk about the importance of goals, setting goals, sticking to your goals. And he references a study by Yale that was done in 1953, where participants were asked if they wrote down their goals. It was shown that only 3% of people wrote down their goals. And out of those 3% of people, they achieved amazing things in their life, accumulating great wealth, becoming successes. Because what happened was those researchers apparently went back many years later to see who wrote down their goals and who didn't, and they found that the people, the 3% who wrote down their goals, achieved great success. What he finds though, and I didn't even know this, was that this study was not real. I've never heard of this study before, never seen it referenced, but apparently this is a very well-known study, no idea, but that this is false. He goes on to say that the self-help industry is filled with books and advice that talks about how your level of wealth is directly connected to how happy you are. The richer you are, the more wealthy you are, the happier you are. But then he goes on to say that's not true, obviously, self-help people, because you can see that in some of the poorest nations in the world, for example, in Nigeria, I didn't even know this, this is great information, by the way. In Nigeria, they have the happiest people per capita in the entire world. And yet you come home somewhere like North America, New York, Chicago, whatever, anywhere in Canada, and people who are living in abundance aren't happy at all. So how do you explain that? All right, so now with all that said, let's dig into this one. The first point that he makes, you lose me right away. Like Berkman lost me right away when he first brought those two books into his argument, into his thesis. And he boils those books down to those golden nuggets? Come on, man. Like, I get what you're trying to do here. But to break those amazing books down to just that simplistic, very cynical point of view doesn't do your argument justice. So number one, I didn't really like that. Number two, goal setting. Okay, the whole idea about goal setting, he talks in depth about how goal setting doesn't actually make you happier and how people who set goals for themselves don't actually use it, end up achieving them. And this is true, but the only reason this is true is because goal setting is hard and we're terrible at goal setting. Does that mean that we should never set goals for ourselves? Of course not. We have to set goals for ourselves. That's how we move forward. That's how we make progress. And by the way, progress does equal happiness. Tell me that it doesn't. Tell me that it doesn't. 
So when he, not, I don't want to say he demonizes goal setting, but he absolutely brings a cynical point of view to the idea of goal setting. And I will tell you this right now, that goal setting is hard. You will fail at it. You will miss your own expectations. You will disappoint yourself, but through that pain, you will grow. When you have enough reasons why you need to do something, you will find a way how. When you have sometimes enough pain where you say, I can't take this anymore, I don't like the way I look, I don't like the way my finances are, I don't like the way my relationships are, you will change. And this is not some motivational mumbo jumbo. It's the truth. The last point he talks about with wealth being connected to people's level of happiness. Listen, I don't know a lot of self-help books that say the richer you are, the happier you're gonna be. I don't know what books he's reading. And if people are reading books out there that say, wow, money equals happiness, come on. I feel like at this point in time, we're smart enough to know that money doesn't equal happiness. It's a very small piece to your life that doesn't necessarily bring happiness. Does it fuel happiness? Yes, it fuels options. It fuels greater freedom, but it does not fuel happiness. Working 80 hours a week in a job that you don't like, doing work that's uninspiring to you, working with people that you don't like, yet you're making a great deal of money, that's not gonna make you happy. I've been there, maybe you've been there. Don't take those jobs. It's not good for you. It's not good for you, your mental state, it's just not. So anyways, golden nugget number one, interesting points overall. I kind of get where he's going with it, and when you lead off a book like that, it's gonna be really hard for me to dig into it. So this is a tough one. We got a lot more golden nuggets to go, so let's keep going. Golden nugget number two, the happier that you want to be, the unhappier you will be. Now what are you getting at here, Berkman? Berkman says that the happier that we want to be, the more we focus on trying to be happy, the more unhappy we get. He references the usage of affirmations here. You all know what affirmations are. And he references one in particular where it's um, in every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better. And he goes on to say that the evidence behind affirmations, that they don't work. And that the more we affirm to ourselves what we want to be, we start to realize, wow, that's not who I am. And it actually makes us upset. So when we say in every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better, and we don't get better, that actually makes us sad. Or if we wake up in the morning, we say, I'm getting stronger and I'm getting better every day and we're not getting stronger and we're not getting better every day. It makes us sad. It makes us upset. And the more that we want to be happy, the less happy we are. And this I agree with him on. In fact, I don't actually use affirmations at any of my practice. With any of my clients, I don't really use affirmations. I'm not a fan of affirmations. What I am a fan of are philosophies. And for all of you who have gone through Create Your Aid, you know that I'm big on philosophies. I call them power philosophies. So instead of an affirmation of, in every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better, no, no, no. This. This is what I like. I don't know if you can see it yet. Of course you can't. Here, let me, let me, let me, let me zoom in on it a little bit. It's not a setback, it's a setup. Those things are weathered, they are old now. So, why do I like power philosophies as opposed to affirmations? Because power philosophies, to me, they are deeply rooted in the direction of life where you want to go. Where do you want to go in life? What are you trying to accomplish? When you are moving in a particular direction in life, life is going to be hard. The journey is going to be tough. 
So you need to have a philosophy that you can fall back on when life gets tough. For example, this one here, it's a staple in the program. It's a staple that I use all the time. Why? Because no matter what happens in my life, no matter what failure comes my way, no matter what trouble, no matter what obstacle, no matter how much I miss my own expectations, I know that that setback was not there to bring me down. It was there to teach me a lesson. It was there to provide a setup for something greater. All right, another one that we can use, and it's not mine, this is Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius is, is life does not happen to you. It happens for you. You understand the difference between that. You're not a victim in life. Life doesn't just happen to you. Life is happening for you. It's providing you lessons, guidance, mentors, teachers. People can help guide you and lead you in the right direction. So when Berkman goes ahead and he says, listen, affirmations don't work and affirmations are a ma massive staple in the positive thinking industry, in the self-help industry, listen, I, I don't know too many people who use affirmations. Yes, there are a lot of people out there who use affirmations and these people are very well known. Tony Robbins is one of them, for example. And Tony Robbins is incredibly successful. So who am I to comment on what Tony's doing? The one thing I will say is it works for some and it doesn't work for others. But just because it doesn't work for you, that doesn't mean you should demonize it. That doesn't mean you should say, hey, this is garbage. Because for some people it does work. I'll tell you first off, like I said, I'm not one that it works for. I don't like affirmations. I prefer power philosophies. But again, to each their own. Don't judge someone, don't demonize someone, don't demonize a tool, a strategy, if it doesn't work for you. Because if it works for someone else, who are you to say that it doesn't work? All right, golden nugget number three. Failure is a part of life. Yes, of course it is. We all know that. You know that, I know that, the person down the street knows that failure is a part of life. But Berkman really digs in deep on this one. And he starts off by saying, you ever notice how in the self-help industry and self-help books, we never read books about people who failed? People who had big goals and they failed miserably. And that was the end of their story. Bravo, brava, brava, Berkman. Obviously not. Nobody wants to hear those stories. We want to hear a comeback story. We want to hear a story where somebody lost everything and came back. Those are the stories that motivate us. Those are the stories the human race loves to dig, to dig into. We love a comeback story. We love an underdog story. So to ask that question, it's like, what? What do you mean? But I understand where he's coming from. He's got a hate on. He has a big hate on for people who don't like the word failure. And he goes back and references a time where he went to um, um, a motivational seminar. And the speaker up there was saying, there's no such thing as failure. And in fact, I want you to remove the word impossible from your vocabulary. Remove it from your vocabulary altogether. In fact, I've actually heard others say, instead of impossible, it's I'm possible. I like that, it's cute. Anyways, he says that the quicker that we get used to failure and the more that we accept it, the happier we will be. See, I, I get it. I'm with Berkman on this one. I love the fact that he is pointing out that failure is a part of life, because it is, and I think we all know that. But here's the problem, is that failure is not the end-all be-all. It just isn't. And he's got this fatalistic point of view with failure in that we all fail, get used to it. You fail, I fail, it sucks, it's brutal. Yeah, you can look at it that way for sure, but I choose not to look at it that way. Again, I'm gonna go back to my philosophies. It's not a setback, it's a setup. How many times have I failed? A ton. 
whatever. Go ahead and reference a whole bunch of other people. Oprah, uh, Michael Jordan, Walt Disney, Thomas Edison. Everybody fails along their way to success. And I think he just has this big problem with people who look at failure as, no, it's not a big deal. It's just a part of life and you'll get through it. It's a lesson. It's not failure. I either win or I learn. I don't fail. And he hates that. And I don't know why. Actually, I know why. And I'll tell you at the end of this episode. But that whole approach there where he just wants us to take this fatalistic approach to failure, I, I don't necessarily agree with. I don't like. And overall, the way that I look at how we need to approach failure is we do need to approach failure as a lesson. Look at it as an opportunity for you to learn something. What didn't work out well? Right? You gotta do your post-mortem after you fail. When it comes to all failures, you need to take a look at why you failed in the first place. Why did you fail? Do you not like this work? Do you lack knowledge? Did you lack discipline? Did you lack the confidence? Why did you fail? When you fail, it's your opportunity to learn. When you win, you celebrate. When you lose, you ponder, you think. At least I hope that's what you do. And you don't take this negative, very pessimistic approach to failure, which is, I failed, it sucks, life sucks. Don't do that. I'm telling you right now, it's not gonna end well for you. When it comes to failure, I still, still like hold firm on this one strong. I either win or I learn. I don't fail. I uh, was walking down here, it's a beautiful part of uh, the city, and I uh, came across this garden one day, and I noticed a whole bunch of these stones everywhere, and I had to ask what was going on. I saw this lady raking the, coal, the, um, the, the leaves away and tending to the garden. Her name was Arlene Kolb, and uh, her son passed away um, from a fentanyl overdose, from a drug overdose. And all these people here have died of drug overdoses. Sometimes they didn't know what they were taking, others it was an addiction problem. And I sat down and talked with her and um, another show that I uh, work with uh, a good friend of mine on, it's called The Community of Big Hearts, we brought her on and we talked to her about her struggle and the suffering. And the reason why I'm talking about this is because this is the next golden nugget. Berkman says that we need to embrace pain, we need to embrace suffering because it will make us happier. When I think about suffering, when I think about pain, I think about Arlene, I think about her losing her son and how painful that is, how difficult that must be. And for all these people who've lost family members, how difficult that is. So Berkman goes on to say that suffering is a part of life and we need to sit and feel those feelings of suffering. And I agree with him. I agree in that as human beings, we will face good times, we will face bad times, and in those bad times, we cannot run away from them. If we run away from them, we don't deal with them. We have to feel them. It's normal to feel sad. It's normal to cry. It's normal to break down. But we have to get back up. But where Berkman loses me 
is when he says that we have no control over our emotions. And he goes and he references a piece of work that Brene Brown did, where it says that we cannot selectively mute our emotions. Then we can't just put our negative emotions like fear, sadness, anger, depression, anxiety, we can't just put them in a box and throw them away. Berkman then goes on to reference a monk and a writer, Thomas Merton, where Thomas Merton says that the more that we try to avoid suffering, the more we move towards it. So the more you think about not trying to suffer, the more suffering you will feel. So uh, I have a problem with a lot of these things that he says. A big problem. Number one, we can't control our emotions. I kind of agree with him on that because you cannot control your emotions, but you can guide them. Emotions are fluid, right? In a day, you might feel a host of emotions. Every year, you will have 50 plus emotions. But that doesn't necessarily mean I can't control them. If I start to feel sad, if I start to feel angry, do you not have tools, weapons in your war chest, in your arsenal, in your quiver that you can employ to help turn things around? If you don't, that's what you need to learn in order to better control your emotions. If I'm in a traffic jam and somebody cuts me off and you know, flips me the bird and I get angry at that. I can sit there and get really angry or I can go back and remember a philosophy, hurt people hurt people. Or I can say maybe this guy's in a rush, maybe he's trying to go somewhere. So you tell me that I can't control my emotions. You're damn right I can control my emotions. And the whole thing about uh, the whole Brene Brown thing that he mentions where you can't just take your emotions and throw them away. Of course you can't. You can't just throw away anger and say, I'm not angry, I'm not angry, I'm not angry. No, you're gonna be angry. Sometimes you have to sit in that anger, sit in that sadness, make sense of it, give meaning to it, and then move on. It's human to deal with these things. And when I was younger, I, I felt that, you know what, I just, I'm just not an angry person, I don't get angry, I don't get sad. I'm telling you, feel the sadness, feel the anger, move through it, learn from it. And last but not least, the Thomas Merton quote that um, he references here, say that the more you focus on suffering, the more suffering you get. Yes, of course, and I agree with that as well. It's the old white polar bear philosophy, where if I tell you, don't think of a white polar bear, what are you gonna think of? You're gonna think of a white polar bear, and a white polar bear, another white polar bear. You're gonna think of a white polar bears everywhere. But that's the key, we don't think about suffering. Don't think about suffering, don't focus on suffering. Don't ask the world to not give me more suffering. Ask the world to give you more things to appreciate more things to love, more things to laugh at. Go through your day thinking about all the things that you're happy for, all the things you appreciated. When you're going through life and you see somebody who smiles at you, take a minute and say, hey, how you doing? How's your day going? Right? When you go into a coffee shop, make conversation with someone, take pleasure in those micro moments of life because that is where the true beauty of life lies. It's not in these big macro moments, these big events that happen in your life. It's always in the small moments. The moment where I met Arlene right here, that was a beautiful moment in my life. Find appreciation in those moments. Look for them, focus on them, create them. And that's your white polar bear. But if you're focusing on suffering, you're focusing on the wrong thing. So please, do not forget that. Keep that gold nugget in mind. It is so important. But anyways, I gotta get myself a cup of coffee. I love this coffee spot. Just asking for a sponsorship. What do you think? Harrison's Coffee? What do you guys think? Anyways, this place is amazing. They have a ridiculous new coffee there. It's uh, like a bourbon bean. Truly amazing. Anyways, grab myself a cup and uh, hit up the next gold nugget.
nugget. Berkman talks about the importance of adopting a mentality of always accepting uncertainty. And that uncertainty is the only certainty in life. And he's not wrong about that either. One thing that he says is that we continually try in life to find certainty. We want certainty, we want clarity, we want to know what's coming up for us tomorrow. We want to be able to dot all the I's, cross all the T's, and that's creating greater stress for us. I would agree with him, I think it's true. That life is inherently uncertain. And there's a lot to reference the Stoics in this, Buddhism, uh, and this is something I truly think that a lot of people have a tough time with. Right? People call people control freaks. I'm a little bit of a control freak myself, but one thing I've learned to do is adopt a mentality that I don't know what's coming. And this level of uncertainty that we have in life, it's just a part of life. And you won't be able to predict exactly what is going to be coming tomorrow or you know, how you're going to react in a certain moment. But one thing I disagree with him on is that he says that we need to adopt a negative capability. A negative capability. Now what does he mean by that? The negative capability is the willingness to take a step back and adopt an accepting stance towards our inner lives no matter what our emotional state is. Not sure I understand that. But what I will say is that adopting a negative capability is never, never a good idea. And instead of adopting a negative capability, what you need to do is adopt an acceptance of whatever may come and build towards having a level of self-belief that whatever does come, whatever challenges come your way, you will find a way through it. This is the third time I've held up these dog tags today. It goes to show how important that philosophy is. I don't need to know the entire path before I start on step one. I just know that whatever path I take, I know that I'm gonna come into challenges, it's gonna come my way, but what I also know is that I'll be resourceful enough to deal with the challenges when they come. And that when I fail, I won't just fail and stop there and say, well, it is what it is. No, okay, that failure happened, great. What can I learn from it? Because I'm not stopping, I'm gonna keep going. I might have to pivot in a different direction, but I'm still gonna move forward. And I think that if you have an unhealthy relationship with certainty where you need to have complete certainty on something, you're probably someone who procrastinates a lot, paralysis by analysis, you do too much research. I remember looking at my sales folks out there, you're probably doing too many online searches, learning too much before you pick up the phone. Sometimes you just gotta pick up the phone. So anyway, is this golden nugget interesting that he says develop a negative capability? I do not agree with that at all. What you do need to develop is a healthy sense of awareness and resourcefulness as you learn to pivot in life. Thanks guys, have a good one. Little bit of rain, ah, oh, easily the best coffee in town. Love it. Sorry, listen, Starbucks, I love you. I truly do. I'm telling you, there's nothing better than a nice little featured special little gourmet bean. Little bourbon soaked bean. Come on, I hate bourbon. Can't stand bourbon. It's got a little bit of flavor, it's good. Anyways, this podcast is not sponsored by a coffee shop. <laughs> it's just good coffee, what can I say? I love it. <laughs> Golden nugget number six, and this is the last golden nugget, and it's a juicy one. Stoicism asks us to embrace fear, negativity, and worry. 
Now, why would these individuals encourage us to embrace these negative things in our lives? Is the Stoics want us to not look at an event? For example, if you lose your job, or you get divorced, or you lose um, your house, right? You lose your health, what have you. These things on the surface can seem very negative, very negative. And you might look at it and say, there's nothing good from this. If you take a nihilistic point of view, this is just bad news, this is the way it is, accept it as that, Ryan, and there's no telling me otherwise. I get it. But the Stoics ask us to think about them deeply. This might be the fourth time that I actually pick up these dog tags. It's gonna become a running theme. Everybody, take a drink every single time I pick up these dog tags. The Stoics say that it's not the event itself that's negative. It's your belief about that event that's what's negative. And how true is that? Because you can have somebody lose their job and say it's the end of the world. And then you can have someone who loses their job and they say, wow, I have new opportunity ahead of me. I have something positive that might actually come about because of this loss of a job, right? Or, wow, like I lost my health, but I gained it back. And now that I have it back, man, I have a greater appreciation for it, right? Think about the people who had COVID-19, myself included. When I had COVID-19, I realized very quickly how precious health was. And sometimes it takes losing stuff to appreciate just how much um, uh, good you have in your life at that current moment in time. So I love the tip that the Stoics shared with us here. I think it's absolutely important that you don't just look at an event as negative, but you actually look at it and try to turn it into a positive. So that's something that our pessimistic friend, uh, Oliver Berkman, maybe didn't see, see there. And that it's not so much about embracing negativity, but it's about giving meaning to that event which you first saw as negative. The second point that the Stoics talk about is using something called premeditation of evil. What the heck is that? Now, I love this one because what the Stoics want us to do is they want us to look at where we are in life and imagine, if you will, how bad life could be. And you might say, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to make myself feel worry, feel anxiety, feel sad by thinking about how bad life could be? Because life isn't like that right now. And life may never be like that. And I use this all the time with myself, with my clients, with my friends, with my family. Let's just say you're having a really tough time in life. Things aren't going so well for you. And I ask you, rate it on a scale of one to 10. How happy or how unhappy are you? Listen, this is terrible. This event, whatever's happening to me right now, this is at a level seven. That's how bad it is. It's at a level seven. That level seven is pretty high. What would make this an eight? What do you mean what would make this an eight? What would make this an eight? Make it even worse. Well, you know, I lost my job, that's a seven. Um, I could also lose my health, that's an eight. Okay, great. What could make this a nine? A nine, I don't know, lose, lose my relationships with my friends and family, I don't know. Okay, but sit in it, think about it, feel it. What would life be like if you lost your friends, if you lost your health, if you lost your job? How bad it would it be? Well, it'd be way worse, be terrible, that's right. Now, what would make this a level 10? Think about it. Don't just go through the exercise in your head, really sit down and feel it. This premeditation of evil is a really powerful technique that will help you find more appreciation in the current position that you currently are at in life. And yes, you know, the events in life may be negative. They may not be good. And I'm not saying to cover it up. I'm not saying to put some rose colored glasses on, but what I'm saying is, yes, it could always be worse. 
And I know how insensitive that might sound already, and I know that people might not like that. Where if you're going through something bad in life, if you go to somebody and you say, hey, relax, it could be worse, that's insensitive. I don't say that you should go tell somebody that, but you as an individual listening to this, watching this, you need to do this yourself. I would never tell somebody, hey, could always be worse. Nah, it's insensitive to say that. But this is a tool that you need to put into your war chest when bad stuff happens to focus on the pre-meditation of evil. What other things could have happened to make this worse? It's a great technique to give you some perspective on where you're currently at. And the last takeaway here from the Stoic philosopher Epictetus. Epictetus says that we have attachment issues. We attach ourselves to people and we attach ourselves to things and we need to form a sense of detachment from these things. Why? Because people are mortal. People born and people die. Things come and go, things break. Things like a car, a brand new car, or a brand new house. These things are here today, gone tomorrow. People are here today, gone tomorrow. And if we form so much attachment to it, that sets us up for failure. And we need to understand that nothing is forever. And at first when you think about this, you might think, well, that's a really negative way of looking at things. I don't think it's negative. I think it's called reality. I don't think it's called reality. And you need to truly understand that yes, things come and things go. People come, people go. And this is why I absolutely love this takeaway because it really drives home the importance of driving appreciation and gratitude for what you have today and realizing that it's not gonna last forever. And your young kids, they're not gonna be young forever. Take pleasure in those micro moments of life. You're sitting there just watching them do nothing. Right, that brand new car you have, take it in. Take in that new car smell, take in what that car looks like and realize that you're not gonna have this car forever. Those moments with your friends, right? Those are the good old days right now, right? Because those good old days won't last forever and you're gonna have to create new good old days. It's actually something I mentioned in an old episode of uh, BJJ where I talked about the good old days and in the, um, the comedy scene in LA, the comedians in LA would argue this is probably the best time for comedy. And they talk about all the stories of them in the green room having a good time, drinking and, you know, jabbing each other, going up and doing comedy. It's the best time for comedy. What's happened to that comedy scene now? In a matter of months, it's gone. No more stand-up. Comedians are moving out of L.A. Right? The, the, the comedy sh uh, stores are closing. Right? Those good times are gone. And if you're guys like Theo Vaughn or Brennan Schaub or Joey Diaz, Joe Rogan, what do you say about those times? Man, those are the good old days, huh? Man, I miss those days. No, you go and create new days because those days don't last, nothing lasts. So take pleasure in the moment right now and sit down and just be present and say, man, these are good days. And when they go, because they eventually will, it's your job to find pleasure, find happiness and create the new good old days, create new memories. Don't be a prisoner of your past and look back and say, man, I wish. I could go back to that time when. Don't do that. Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher Epictetus, suggests that we don't do that. And I completely agree with him. And I gotta thank Berkman for bringing this point up because it's so important and we need to learn to detach ourselves from events, from things, from people, and take greater pleasure in what we have today. And know that when we lose them, we will create new memories, new good times, new relationships, new things in the future. Such a great golden nugget to end off on. Absolutely love this one.
All right, so what do I say about this book? I think it's a decent book. Not bad overall. I do think that it raises a lot of really good points with regards to the positive thinking industry, the self-help industry. Listen, I know that there are a lot of charlatans out there. There are. But what I will say, it's not as bad or as bleak as he's painting the uh, picture to be. It's not that bad. And this idea of positive thinking is a very pessimistic approach to it. And the reason why he's so pessimistic to it is because he himself is a pessimist. He has gone off and said many times that he is a pessimist by nature and that he's using his pessimism and trying to find a way to monetize it. Um, obviously, mainly just because I'm a pessimistic British grouchy person and, and I wanted to, uh, you know, monetize that. But, um... And this book is how he does it. So I feel like maybe it lacks a little bit of inauthenticity, maybe it's a little bit too biased from the pessimistic point of view, and I think that when you preach negativity and pessimism as the solution, the antidote to the positive mentality that people have today, I think it's dangerous. I think that him being very selective with his stories, being very selective with how he approaches certain books, certain philosophies, I think it's irresponsible. I think that if people read this book, it paints a really negative picture of positivity and positive thinking and being an optimist. And he says, no, we need to be pessimists. No, I, I, we don't need to be pessimists. We need to be realistic optimists or optimistic realists, whatever you want. If you look at it like a scale where you have pessimists on the far left, you have the realist in the middle, and you have the optimist on the right, you want to be in between the optimist and the realist. Be realistic. Face reality as it is. But don't sugarcoat it. Call it what it is, but expect the best. Expect that you're going to give it your best. Expect that if you put in the effort, if you have the right philosophies, if you have the right approach, that you will get through it. But don't take a nihilistic point of view and say, well, this is just crappy and life's just crappy sometimes, right? No, I disagree with that. I think that attitude will serve you far less than having an optimistic attitude. I don't think, I know. There's very few people in this world who could tell me, very few, I don't think there's anybody in this world who could tell me that pessimism is the way to go over optimism. Not at all. Whether I'm teaching leadership or organizational behavior and I have all these students challenge me on the validity of taking a pessimistic approach, whether it's authors, subject matter experts, I have never been able to find one person who at the end of a discussion will say that a pessimistic point of view is the best way to go. Become the optimistic realist. Now would I recommend you pick up this book? Not at all. I really don't. And the reason why I don't, and I'm sorry if I'm being, becoming over, overly harsh on this, but I just feel he has an incomplete view of the industry, of the self-help industry. And maybe he's gone to too many conferences, or maybe he's read books you know, by the 20-year-old life coach. <laughs> but if that's your view of the self-help industry, you need to dig a little bit deeper. But again, I'm not trying to convert the unconvertible. He's a pessimist. And as a pessimist, he's already on that far side. I'm not gonna save him. It's not my job to save him. If he goes through life feeling happy, then hell yeah, I'm happy for him. But for everybody else, I would argue that he takes a very incomplete view of the self-help industry, of certain texts like Seven Habits and How to Win Friends and Influence People, of the idea of positivity by promoting negativity and pessimism. Nah, it's dangerous. 
That's a mind virus that uh, we absolutely have to eradicate. But I'm not a big fan of this book. Wasn't a big fan of the approach. But uh, there were absolutely some things that we could learn from this. And I hope, I hope that you learned something from this episode as well. In any case, I don't know what I'm going to go do. I'm going to grab something to eat. Grab another coffee. I don't know. Anyways, it's looking good out here. Hope you all have a fantastic, productive, inspired week. And uh, we'll catch you back here next week on uh, the Cut the Crap Show. Take it easy, everybody. I almost forgot. Listen, if you disagree with anything that I said on this episode, if you love the book, if you love the analysis, if you feel I missed out on something, if you feel I was overly harsh, text me. Let me know what you think. 1-917-540-8169. 1-917-540-8169. Listen, I want to hear from you. I want to know if you watched this, if you listened to this. I just want to connect with the people out there who are listening to this, who are watching this, so I know who's out there. Listen, I do this because I want to build relationships with people. So throw me a text, let me know your thoughts, and uh, just tell me you said hi, and I will text you back. All right, now I'm out of here. Take it easy, everybody.